This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. And if you are a first time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. And if you're maybe possibly studying through a passage of scripture or have an issue in your life that you'd like biblical counsel on, well, if we can help again, the number locally, 843-525-1859. You can also email us here directly into the studio and the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here and uh, let's go ahead and we'll jump in with both feet and Uh, help people if we can by God's grace. Absolutely. A lot of things going on today. As a matter of fact, you know what today is, don't you? Uh, What is today? Today is election day in Alabama. Yes, it is. That's an interesting race. Uh, In fact, uh, I was reading this morning, for some reason, they tossed the Wall Street Journal on my... uh, in front of my driveway uh, this morning. So I used to get it uh, through airline miles and I was reading about the race that's actually going on. It's really between a religious conservative, a Tea Party insurgent, and uh, a candidate who's uh, backed Luther Strange by the, what we call the Washington establishment. Most people would call him a rhino, Republican in name only. Mm. Uh, But in either case, uh, Roy Moore, who a lot of us know as the Ten Commandments judge is running in that state. Dr. Dobson, a friend in uh, Savannah, sent me a clip, and Dr. Dobson just officially endorsed him last week. And he's a great guy. Many, many years ago, many people will remember that he uh, had the Ten Commandments out there in front of his courthouse, and some people said it was illegal and this and that. And while it was under uh, the whole process of discussion and working its way through the legal system, uh, those Ten Commandments made themselves around the country. And one Easter Sunday, we actually had the Ten Commandments that had been there in front of his courthouse and in front of our church and people could come by and look at him and see them. But he's a great man, uh, committed, deeply committed Christian. And we really need more people like that in government. So if you know anyone in Alabama, by the way, it's not an issue of Republican or Democrat. It's being a Christocrat. I think we we need to support godly people. It's very, very important in the day that we live in for people who will stand for what is right because someone's voice is going to be heard. And the question is, will it be a moral voice, a moral vote, or will it be an immoral voice? 
And too often Christians have sat on their hands and we're losing more and more freedoms that we've taken for granted. And we're wondering why. And sometimes it's because we're doing nothing. So this is an important day. And I hope people, if they have friends in Alabama, they'll encourage them to get out and vote, vote their conscience. But if they're looking for a good man, Roy Moore, as Dr. Dobson endorsed him last week, he's a great brother in Christ. Heard him speak, shared a platform with him many years ago up in Columbia with Exodus Ministries and uh, really admire him greatly. Indeed. Well, Tim from Bluffton writes in Matthew 2, verse 23, which reads, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that uh, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he could be called a Nazarene. Uh, where in Scripture do the prophets speak of the Messiah being a Nazarene? Let me flip there real fast. This is a question that comes up. We, we haven't had it maybe in a decade on the Bible line, uh, but I cover it in my course in Bibliology. So if you're a first-time listener, we have a uh, course of study called the Institute of Biblical Studies. It's approximately 33 hours, and it's taught on a seminary level. And these are courses that I have taught on Wednesday nights. A few of them I plan to redo and I think do a hopefully a better job the next time through in terms of even going further. But the bibliology course I just did three, four years ago, it's over 500 pages and notes that people work through. They listen through a number of uh, lectures. They fill in the note taking outlines. Then there's books they have to read, papers they have to write to get credit for it. And when they're done, they can get a degree from the Institute of Biblical Studies. We don't make any money on it. Our goal is really as a local church is to equip people, especially those who maybe are in places in the country where uh, there is a famine for Bible teaching. And so um, in either case, in one section of that course, we do what uh, on biblical inerrancy, uh, the, the Bible is inerrant. Uh, it's not enough to say it's inspired anymore. We have to take a little bit further and say, well, the Bible is without error. It's perfect in everything that it is said and everything that is written about it. And so in one section of the course, I do with alleged contradictions in the Bible. And this is one that is often, unfortunately, used uh, by the liberals who want to say there are mistakes in the Bible. And let me just say parenthetically, while we're thinking about that, um, we, we live in a day where a uh, pastor may say the Bible is inspired, or he may even use the word inerrant, but he means something different from historical Christianity. It used to be enough to say, well, I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Not anymore, because there are actually about 10 views on inspiration, which I go through in the course on bibliology. It used to be enough to say, well, I believe the Bible is not only inspired, but it is inerrant. So someone, they use the term inspired, they might say, well, it's inspired like Shakespeare is. Or they may say it's inspired more than other religious books. Uh, some people today may use the word inerrant to say, well, the Bible's inerrant in some of the spiritual truths that it uh, propagates, but not every single word that it says. There may be historical errors, scientific untruths, they would argue in and so they are really not true inerrantists. So today what you want to hear from a pastor's lips as you look for a church home is that he affirms what we call verbal uh, plenary uh, uh, inspiration. Verba is the word for, for word, plenary, full. So we're talking about a full word by word, literally letter by letter inspiration of the Bible. And by the way, that was Jesus's view of inspiration. In the Sermon on the Mount when... Uh, he described his public ministry and 
his own view of scripture. Uh, he made some unequivocal statements about how he viewed uh, the Old Testament. He said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. That was the way they described the Old Testament. Sometimes they called it the Psalms, the law and the prophets. Today, Jews just refer to it as the Tanakh. Tanakh is a, uh, an acronym for uh, Torah, Nephaim, and um, Ketuvim. The Torah, of course, being the first five books, the Nephi'im being the prophets, the Hebrew word for prophets, and Ketuvim is the word for the l- wisdom literature, you know, like Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and so forth. Um, in either case, they don't call it the Old Testament, obviously, if you're Jewish, because it's the only Bible they have. But at this point, the only Bible that the church had when Jesus gave this sermon was the Old Testament. For truly, I say to you, he says in the next verse, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it is accomplished. So he believed this scripture was so inspired down to the smallest letter or stroke. The smallest letter, it literally says a yod in, in the Greek Bible. A yod is the smallest Hebrew letter. It looks like an apostrophe in, in our English writing. Uh, it's just a tiny little letter Yod in a stroke. Well, a stroke is a little mark of the pen. For instance, in Hebrew, there's the letter Daleth and the letter Resh. Uh, the difference in those two letters would be the difference between the printed letter O and the printed letter Q in English. Just one little slash mark. And so Jesus said down to the smallest letter, down to the smallest slash mark, the scriptures inspired. He gave a... Um, a defense for his deity on one occasion with the tense of the verb. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am. As he spoke to the Sadducees who denied the afterlife and the bodily resurrection, meaning Abraham is still very much alive. His body may be dead, but he's very much alive. So when we come here to Matthew, let me just give a running start because it's an important question you're asking. Uh, To put it in its context, I'll begin back in verse 19 of Matthew 2. But when Herod died, and this, by the way, is Herod the Great. There are seven Herods that are mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, Five that make their way into the Gospels. uh, Two that make their way into the book of Acts. So when you see the term Herod, it's kind of a title. You want to ask, well, which Herod are we speaking of? Now, Herod Antipas technically makes it twice in into the uh, gospel, into the Acts of the Apostles as kind of a dishonorary mention that he was the one that Jesus stood before. But most of us know Herod the Great. He's the one that is involved in the Christmas story. And we at least know Herod Antipas. He's the one that Christ stood before. So those are like the two biggie, biggie Herods in the Bible. In either case, but when he heard that, oh, let me go back. So when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, but an angel of the Lord, because the angel of the Lord never appears after the incarnation. Uh, An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, this is another Herod. uh, This is Herod Archelaus, the son of, of Herod the Great, one who took his place after his death, after he died, four of his sons. The guy's married 10 times. 
and he has uh, six sons. There are a number of different wives, but uh, Herod Achilles was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod. He was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. So he, he's planning to go in one direction and God redirects him in a dream to go in another direction. And then it says, and he, and, and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. He obviously didn't want to go back to Nazareth for practical regions. You know, people thought, oh yeah, Joseph, yeah, you got Mary pregnant when you shouldn't, or, or, or excuse me, Mary got pregnant, not by you while you were betrothed. And so she was somewhat stained in the eyes of the people, but God leads him back to Nazareth. He wasn't going to go back to that city, but he goes back to that city. And in doing so, Matthew wrote, this was to fulfill what the prophets said. He shall be called a Nazarene. Please note, this is not what the prophet singular said, because if you search the scriptures to no avail, will you find a quote concerning Messiah being raised in Nazareth? But when you look at the totality of what the prophets said about Messiah, you will say, well, yeah, this is exactly what the prophets said, that he shall be a Nazarene, not a Nazarite. There was a Nazarite vow, which Jesus never took, uh, but a Nazarene. And the uh, Nazareth, if you were, you know, if you're from Beaufort, you're called a Beaufortonian. If you're from Savannah, what do they call people from Savannah? Savannians? Uh, Savannians, I guess so, whatever. And so uh, and on we could go. Boston, Bostonians. If you're from Nazareth, you're called a Nazarene. In fact, it was just a despised place. Uh, Nathaniel, when he met Jesus, asked the question, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Implication, absolutely not in his mind. It was the other side of the tracks. And so Nazareth was a despised place and uh, it was looked down upon. And so when you look at the composite teaching of the prophets, it's very clear that the Messiah would be a scorned individual. There are many Old Testament prophecies that describe the life of Messiah as lowly as being a person of rejection. Obviously, most of us know at least Psalm 53 or Psalm 22 or Daniel 9, great prophetic passages, Zechariah 12, that all speak of the Messiah in a very downcast kind of way. And of course, that was part of, part of God's plan for him. So uh, there's no contradiction. There are no contradictions anywhere in the Bible. And so in my course in bibliology, I go through about 50 of the most quote unquote common uh, passages that people, uh, critics of the Bible use to attack the Bible. And they're unschooled. They distort the scriptures to their own destruction. They're just looking for a reason to suppress the truth of God in their hearts. So they attack the Bible. And unfortunately, a lot of young people go off to the university and they sit under some professor and they take some religion course that the professor's job is to dismantle the Bible, to make it in their minds unreliable. And they, people say, well, they lose their faith. Well, they didn't lose their faith. Nobody loses their faith. If you're truly saved, you can't lose something that's eternal. But there's a lot of people who are being raised in Christianized homes or even Christian homes that, quote unquote, lose their faith because they never had it to begin with. I have college students on a regular basis write me and said, well, my professor said this, how would you respond to it? 
And I will respond back and say, well, here's a biblical explanation. This is not actually a contradiction. These two passages actually complement one another. And here's how you put them together. So um, this is an important question you're asking for a number of reasons, because it is one of the alleged discrepancies in the Bible, but it's no discrepancy at all. There is really a good answer for it. I appreciate that question. Let's go on to the next one. Rick. All right. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and a caller says that um, on your series in Revelation, you said some believe the seven churches are ages and you indicated you didn't believe that. But uh, yeah. this caller is thinking that uh, sometime, possibly in the past, you, you may have taught that at one time, or was that somebody else? No, what you probably heard me say was that um, I, I, I think that the church in Laodicea represents the seventh time frame, or I, I didn't say the seventh time frame, but the final time frame in, in human history. So you might have assumed that I was taking the historical approach in reference to the seven churches. But no, I'm, I'm not. I, what I do recognize is that the church at Laodicea, and, and I should probably uh, step back and explain here because a lot of people who are listening today, maybe live streaming or listening after the broadcast is posted, uh, don't even realize I'm teaching through the book of Revelation and I am chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we just finished the seventh church. I actually took seven messages on the seven churches of Revelation because I feel like it is so very, very important. But there are different approaches that have been taken to the book of Revelation. There's what we call the preterist approach. Preterism is from a Latin word that means past. And so there are full preterists and partial preterists. Uh, a full predator says the entire book of Revelation has already been fulfilled. And there's a few wackos out there who, who think we're actually in the, uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. And well, if we are, I must be living in the ghetto because it's not that very nice in terms of what I think the new heavens and the new earth should be like. Uh, there's not many like that, but most are what we call partial preterists. They say, well, most of the book of Revelation has already taken place. And there's some guys like Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man, and R.C. Sproul and others who take this position. And they say, with the exception of the second coming in Revelation 19, the events that are recorded basically in 1 through 18 happened in the first century. Well, you really have to spiritualize the text of Scripture to come to that conclusion but they have motivations because of some of the theological systems that they're trying to defend outside of Revelation forces them to take that position. Another view is the historical view, and they argue that the book of Revelation is reflecting different times in church history. So Luther, for instance, held that view, and he taught that the Pope was the Antichrist of the day and so forth. And um, the, the problem with that approach to revelation is it really doesn't coincide with the divine outline that God gave for the book of revelation. The divine outline for revelation one uh, is found in revelation one nineteen. John, I want you to write about the things that you've seen. That's past. That's chapter one. He records the vision and verse 20 concludes with a definition of some terms given in that vision. Uh, then chapters two and three, the things that are, and he writes of seven actual churches, real literal churches that are alive and functioning in the first century. And then the things that will be. So really the futuristic sections doesn't begin until after these things. So 
he writes, and then write about the things after these things. After these things section of the book begins in Revelation 4.1, and twice in that verse, he mentions metatata, after these things. We will come and begin the futuristic uh, section of the book of Revelation this coming Sunday. Now, with that said, there are people who take a futuristic approach to Revelation, and they take the seven churches, not only as real historical churches, but as uh, types, so to speak, as pictures of seven stages in church history. Again, the, the problem with that and people who've taken this is you'll read of one definition of typology given, say, in the 16th century and a different in the 18th century and the different set in the 21st century. Most want to come to the, to the seventh church being the final church in what it is like when Jesus returns. The church at Laodicea, a lukewarm church. And so you've probably heard me say that the seventh church pictures what it will be like at the end of the age, not because I'm taking a seven stage approach to revelation in reference to those churches, but I am taking the approach that the day that Jesus and the apostles described for Christ's second coming, not the rapture, but the second coming mimics the days that, or mimics the church that Laodicea was like. How do I know that? Because other passages of scripture tell me that the church of Laodicea is going to be a Luke, is a lukewarm church, and that the days at Christ's second coming will be days of lukewarmness. Now, I also teach that prophetically nothing has to happen for the rapture. Why do I teach that? Because that's what the New Testament espouses that there's an imminent return of Christ. In other words, I think Christ could come back today because I believe in the imminent return of Christ. Some people don't. They say, well, Christ couldn't come back today. Why not? Well, because the Antichrist hasn't come and the abomination of desolation hasn't happened. And there's all kinds of prophecy that has to happen for Revelation 19 to take place. Well, that's true. There's all kinds of prophecy that has to take place for Revelation 19 to take place. But Revelation 19 is the second coming of Christ. That's when he returns to the earth where his feet are planted on the Mount of Olives. Now, there are other people who teach an imminent return uh, like um, we play Alistair Begg, and I love Alistair. He's a good guy, um, but he takes a very different approach to end times prophecy. And so they just kind of all blend it all together. And they say, well, the next event is the second coming and Jesus won't literally rule on the earth for a thousand years. And, you know, we'll just enter into the eternal state. So what you have to do to come to those kinds of conclusions is you have to apply a different system of interpretation when it comes to prophecy than you do for the rest of the Bible. But how did God fulfill the prophecies concerning the first coming of Messiah? Literally, he fulfilled every single prophecy. Literally, when Micah said Messiah will be born in Bethlehem of Judea, he was literally born in a place called Bethlehem of Judea. When the scripture said seven centuries before Jesus incarnated himself, that Messiah would be pierced through for our iniquity. They didn't really know what that meant, but they knew he would be pierced through somehow because uh, crucifixion's not really invented until the Persians centuries later. And it's perfected by the Romans as a means of capital punishment. But he was literally pierced through for our iniquity. Um, there's all kinds of literal prophecies, like in Psalm 22, 
where he's given gall to drink and on and on and on we could go. Every single prophecy was literally fulfilled. And so for us to expect a different vehicle for God to fulfill the prophecies concerning the second coming would be a huge mistake. And so um, we do know in Revelation chapter one, the, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, gave him Jesus to show his bond servants, Jesus's bond servants, the things must, that must soon take place. So this revelation of Jesus Christ was given to Jesus. In what sense? That he was learning something new? No, he's the omniscient God. He's in heaven and his glorified body. And in some of the attributes that he may have temporarily laid aside are not laid aside now that he's in heaven. But it's given to him in the sense that he is the one who's going to execute the revelation. And then he goes on to tell us how it will take place. It says, and the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it. Uh, If you have the New American Standard or uh, other translations, it might note or signified it. Uh, The King James renders it in signified. Uh, Signified is the word signified, so to speak. In other words, I'm giving you signs by which to communicate. Uh, this revelation that we call the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't mean that we don't literally still interpret the Bible. If, um, if Satan is called the red dragon and he's identified as such in the revelation, it, the, the term red dragon speaks of his ferocious, wicked nature. So when I interpret the sign and scripture has to interpret the sign for me, the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. Once I understand what the sign means, then I can literally uh, interpret the sign. So it doesn't dismiss a literal interpretation, or sometimes we'd like to call it a plain interpretation or, or a historical grammatical interpretation. Because sometimes when people ask you, do you literally believe the Bible? What they are often doing is trying to dismiss the Bible as true. Oh, you don't take a literal interpretation. You don't believe that the Bible's literally true. And usually when they're asking that, they're saying there's a moral issue in their life that they don't want to come to grips with. So, you know, Paul, well, I mean, maybe he thought homosexuality was wrong, but I don't, they would argue. And so they distort the scriptures, as Peter said, to their own destruction. So when we look at Revelation 2 and 3, these are seven real literal churches. And I go through, if you've been with in our study, why these seven churches? I go through five reasons. Well, why not the church at Rome, which was probably one of the more famous churches in the first century? Why not the church at Colossae? And we have the letter to the Colossians that was right in this very region, just a few miles away from Laodicea. Why not the great missionary church, Antioch? Why not the founding mother church, Jerusalem? Why these seven? Well, some would say because they represent seven time frames in church history. And again, I think that's interesting. I'd like to believe it, but I don't really embrace that because I don't see that plainly taught. But what I do plainly teach and believe is that the seventh church that is mentioned does typify the final time frame for the sec- for the events for the second coming. So again, nothing has to happen for the rapture. All kinds of things have to happen for the second coming. So when you see, however, prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, then you know the rapture must be that much closer 
because the rapture precedes the second coming. Now, sometimes people, I should define terms here, when they use the term first coming or second coming, it's, it's, it's very uh, large in their definition. Like very often when we refer to the first coming of Christ, we're talking about his incarnation, being born in Bethlehem. We're talking about his uh, lifestyle that's uh, recorded up until the age of 30, his three and a half year ministry until he's 33, it, meaning his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his 40 days on the earth. Uh, we would say that's all part of the first coming program. And so sometimes when people use the term second coming, they're referring to a, a series of events beginning with the rapture, the catching up of the church. When he comes in the rapture, we meet him, we meet him in the air. He's coming for his saints. But at the second coming, he's coming back with his saints and he plants his feet literally on the Mount of Olives. That prophecy has never been fulfilled. God says in Zechariah 14, Messiah is going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives and the mountain is going to split in half. That has never literally been fulfilled, but it's going to be. So again, some people kind of, you know, take some of these uh, prophecies that deal with the return of Jesus and they spiritualize them and they said, well, that dust can't happen like that. And then just the next event is Jesus comes back and we, we go to heaven and that's it. Well, actually, he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. Oh, the word thousand, that's just a, a, a number of fullness. It's not a literal number. Well, what gives you permission to interpret the text in that way? Nothing especially in light of how Jesus and the apostles interpreted the text. But again, there is often a system of theology that, that drives their interpretation of prophecy. So like an R.C. Sproul, who, you know, I'm glad he has the gospel and we'll meet him in heaven. Thank God for that. But he's really warped in a lot of his eschatology. He thinks the church is the new Israel, that we've supplanted Israel. And so all of the promises that God made to Israel, well, they were conditional. Uh, there are conditional promises in the Bible, but not the ones God made to Israel, or not all of them. Some of them are conditional, but not all of them. And so they have to spiritualize the text. And, and when they come to Revelation, well, interestingly, John Calvin, who obviously many would consider as the founder of Reformed theology, and again, that's a, a word that's been robbed from our vocabulary as evangelicals, just like the word charismatic. I'm a charismatic Christian. I don't think I should speak in tongues, but I am a charismatic Christian in the sense that I think God still gives spiritual gifts and every Christian is responsible to find it least the one gift he has, if not maybe two, maybe even three, uh, he's responsible to find out what that gift or gifts are and to be a good steward of them because that's part of what they will give an account for. And so the word reformed has been kind of robbed from evangelicals and reformed theology usually refers today to hyper-Calvinists who believe that there are, you know, five points to Calvinism as it relates to salvation and there's a certain belief system as it relates to the church and Israel and all these things. And, and so it approaches the Bible in a very different way. Um, and there's a lot of confusion in our day, but because they believe that church has replaced Israel, uh, that flavors how they interpret, say, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And Romans 9 is not dealing with um, the election of a nation, but it's dealing with the election of an individual. And it affects their whole view of end times theology because they have to just 
do it away. So what I'm trying to say is sometimes you can read the scriptures with certain presuppositions. And if you are trying to defend a system of theology, then you might uh, end up being flavored by how you approach the scriptures. But I do approach the scriptures, even those dealing with future events in a plain historical grammatical approach, because that's how Jesus interpreted the scriptures of the old Testament. That's how the apostles interacted with the old Testament scriptures. So God within the Bible gave us a system for interpreting the Bible so that we wouldn't have to be confused. Anyway, that's a great question. It's a long answer, but I think it deserved a, a good answer. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning, Rick. Yeah, good morning. Uh, Pastor, I was reading this week where Perry Noble has applied to get a new church and found a new church. And I'm a bit confused. I know that God forgives all sin, you know, if you ask him. But I, I was just uncertain at how a, a man who was disgraced and dismissed from his church could get permission to start a new church. Well, it's a good question. He's not really getting permission uh, from anyone. It's just something he's doing on his own. Perry Noble, maybe not everyone is familiar with his name. I, I was criticized for a long time for speaking out against New Spring Church because Perry Noble was the pastor. And man, to me, he's just very confused in the way he interpreted and approached scripture. And he's a very charismatic kind of individual and a great ear tickler in telling people what they want to hear. And so I was critical for dismissing him as being a solid pastor that people should follow. And what he was basically doing was emptying out, especially Baptist churches. Technically, New Spring is a Southern Baptist church. But he was emptying out all these small little Southern Baptist churches and really destroying them. You know, if a church has 75 people and the average attendance, by the way, of a church in America is about 75 folks. And they go to that church and, you know, Perry Noble comes along with this, you know, marvelous, quote unquote, system of music and lights and smoke and entertainment. And people say, man, they, they, I got to go visit that church. And before you know it, they become members and they're sucked in. And a lot of these little small Baptist churches of 75 to 200 are really still today. They're struggling to keep their doors open because they can't, you know, um, maintain even the building and the grounds because they've lost their giving base. And what to me is the saddest thing is they lost their giving to local missions uh, and international missions. And so Southern Baptist took a huge hit in South Carolina in terms of the number of uh, small churches that were giving to both uh, home missions and foreign missions because these churches now are just trying to pay a pastor's salary and some of them have lost their ability to even do that and keep the doors open, get the grass cut and so forth. That's Perry Noble. That's his ministry. And of course, uh, over a year ago, he was dismissed from the church for a problem with alcohol and other things. I don't know what all the other things are. But again, this, is, uh, this comes out of Reformed theology today. It's very popular today for a Reformed pastor. And he's not a Reformed pastor, but to say, it's okay to use alcohol. Go ahead and have some wine. 
and, I, and I'm seeing these young pastors who are adopting this point of view, and some are adding smoking in moderation. Have a pipe, have a cigar, don't be legalistic. Have a glass of wine, have a beer. It's okay, that's what people wanna hear. And it's not okay. And it's a distortion of what the word of God teaches. And I go through this in some sermons. In either case, um, Noble was very popular, great ear tickler. And in his advocating uh, the use of alcohol in moderation, he himself became trapped in it. And because of that, he was asked to step down. And finally, even, even some of the leadership recognized, I guess we got to ask him to step down. Now, how qualified is that leadership is beyond me. You know, when you have leaders in the church who are following Perry Noble closely when he's espousing all kinds of error and heresy. I mean, the guy, every time I would hear him, I would just, I would just want to get sick sometimes to think of what many of God's people were being exposed to. Yeah, that's true, Perry. That's wrong. That's true. That's wrong. And I heard a few sermons, not even in their entirety, but I'd listen for like 10 minutes. And say, I can't take anymore. There's so much error mixed in with truth. It's pathetic. And yet a lot of these people who now the pastor is took his place. I mean, he was the associate pastor. And so I, it makes me wonder really how discerning he is. Well, Perry Noble, even they had to acknowledge, well, we got to ask this guy to step down. And now he, you know, filed for a new 501c3 status and not that churches need that, but he's going to start a new church. And I think he's calling it second chance, you know, and again, that will bring people in. Well, God is the God of a second chance and God is a God of forgiveness uh, someone from a national Christian organization spoke with me recently and they asked me um, about a person high up in their organization who had committed adultery and the guy was very gifted and uh, God used him, uh, you know, to help that organization as an administrator. And now he wants to come back, you know, about 18 months later. And they asked me what I thought. I said, I think it would be very unwise he hasn't had enough time to prove himself. So we're not talking about when we let a pastor go for immorality or whatever it might be. This is not an issue of forgiveness. This is an issue of qualifications. And it takes time to build character. So if someone has been immoral or someone has lived the life of a drunkard like Perry Noble has, and he still hasn't you know, rescinded his teaching on using alcohol in moderation. We're, we're not talking about forgiveness, we're talking about qualifications for ministry and the standards are very high for someone who's in pastoral leadership or someone who's in leadership in an organization. I said, this would be a big mistake for you to take this administrator back because history may repeat itself. He hasn't had enough time. And then now that your organization has even grown and blossomed even more, the world will use this to mock you as an organization and it will be very harmful to you. So we need to be wise. It used to be like if a pastor had some kind of moral failing, there was a minimum of five to 10 years depending on the organization before they would let the person be reconsidered for full-time ministry. And even then, you know, very often uh, the, the, the issue that's at hand, uh, it, it might be that that person couldn't serve in that community again. If a pastor, say, committed adultery and it was all over the newspapers and 10 years later he comes back, you know, it's probably going to be doubtful that 
people are going to respect them. But now the times are changing. And you see people can go to a New Spring Church and be in adultery and and be living an immoral lifestyle. No one's going to do anything. And so that's really sad. And, and so people, they don't really care. So, yeah, we'll take a preacher. And if he's not going to do anything, if I'm going to live immorally or uh, he's not going to do anything, if I drink and get buzzed and high, then, yeah, I, I'd like him to be my preacher. That, that's what the scripture says will happen at the end of time. We are seeing a fulfillment of what God warns us of that would happen in, at the end of time. And so let me just read a, a passage in, from Second Timothy chapter 3. It almost sounds like a commentary in our day. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power, avoid such men as these. Um, Paul likewise says in his first letter to Timothy, the spirit explicitly says in that in the latter times, which is really the last of the last days, it's a technically a different term from last days. Latter times refers to the days before the second coming that um, some will fall away from not faith, but the faith, uh, the articular use of faith in the Bible. The faith is referring to what we call the body of truth, uh, the New Testament, the Bible. Uh, Jude uses it that way in his opening verses. They pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And so, again, these are these are people who are, in essence, uh, apostates. And listen, we, we have to be wise. We have to be discerning. People no longer know the Bible. It's really, it's, we're living in a sad day, but a prophesied day. We're living in a day of lukewarmness and indifference. And this is the atmosphere that will typify the church before the second coming. Now you can't say, well, that's the hand I've been dealt and I have no choice. No, you don't have to be a part of the lukewarm last days, latter times church. You personally, anyone listening to me can personally be different. And you ought to find a church where at least the congregation is also shares a a similar commitment. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Um, I'm really excited. We have got uh, apparently a Bible study that's taking place at the Ridgeland Correctional Facility, and they've begun listening to the Bible line, oh, and good, yeah. they've sent in a couple of questions. All right. So, uh, Mr. Shaw would like to know, how do you get past your past, or do you ever get past it as a believer? Well, it's a good question. Uh, it begins, obviously, with forgiveness and really understanding how God thinks about you. So that is a critical, critical um picture you want to get in your mind. So for instance, we teach a 45 week course. And by the way, I'll make it available to this correctional institute. I get a lot of letters to search the scriptures through uh, men who are in jail and they write me a lot of questions and I try to respond to as many of them personally. Some of them I give to Pastor Ed and I say, Pastor Ed, I'm just covered over. You know, would you write this man back? And sometimes they're requesting literature, but the discovery class 
It's called Back to Basics at searchthescriptures.org. Is basically a 45-week course that will walk you through the essentials of the Christian faith to get grounded. And so one of the, the, the first two lessons that we basically take six weeks on, uh, sessions number one and two, are eternal security. And then the second lesson is concerns uh, dealing with our, our past and dealing with sin and temptation. So really understanding that you are a forgiven person and even the word pictures that God gives, we deal with that in the first section. For instance, in the book of Colossians, if I can use just one illustration to, to start, this is what we call one of the prison epistles in the New Testament. And if you were under house arrest or in a Roman uh, prison, you would have outside the door of your cell what would be called a certificate of debt, a CD, not like we use in banking terms, but a certificate of debt. And it basically listed the crime that you had committed against Rome that was a non-executionable crime, uh, a crime that could be paid for by serving your time, so to speak, in the prison system. And so Paul says, for instance, in Colossians chapter 1, to affirm the forgiveness that we have. On one thirteen, he says, he rescued you from the domain of darkness and he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we're either in the domain of darkness lost or we have been transferred into the kingdom of God's son in whom, in Jesus, God's beloved son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He illustrates it in the second chapter, the 13th verse, when you are dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's basically a, a description of what we were like before we were saved. Our bodies may have been breathing and the heart and lungs were functioning, but spiritually speaking, we're dead. Uh, Paul uses similar terminology in Ephesians 2. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. With that said, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our transgressions. There it is again. Didn't forgive us of some of our sin, but all of it. Uh, Peter said he bore our sin in his body on the cross. Wait a minute. I wasn't born when Peter wrote those words. Does that apply to me? Yes. Once for all time, Christ died for sin. Everyone listening within the sound of my voice was not alive when Jesus died. In one sense, all your sin was future. So God took the sins of the old covenant era, all the people who lived before Jesus. He looked down the corridors of time and saw every wicked, vile, evil thought, word, or deed you ever did. And he laid it on Christ. Christ bore our sin in his body on the cross. So he didn't miss anything. He saw everything and bled and died for it. So when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Colossians 2.13, he made you alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us of all our transgressions. Now here's the illustration. Having canceled out their certificate of debt, that's the CD I was talking about. That was the um, document on the outside of your cell saying this person, you know, robbed from his neighbor and he will spend six months in prison. He canceled out your certificate of debt. Uh, those uh, decrees that were against us, that were hostile to us. Why? Because they condemned us. And what did he do with your certificate of debt? He took it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. What did the Roman government do with your certificate of debt? When you paid your crime, they would actually, with the Roman imprimatur stamped on it, would write the words tetelestai. The word tetelestai is a one word in, in Greek, 
It's the word that Jesus shouts from the cross just before he dies, to telestai. We translate it, it is finished. You could translate it paid in full. So there was a certificate of debt that had all of your sin on it that was hostile to you because it condemned you. And in the Bible, it's not the amount of sin that condemns us. It's the fact of sin. Some people have said to me, well, I don't think God can forgive me. I'm such a big sinner. Well, in the Bible, it's not the amount of sin. It's the fact of sin that condemns you. That's why James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point or one commandment, he's become guilty of all. That's how holy God is. He's just the opposite of us. And everything he ever said, did, or thought, he is perfect. And that's why one sin is enough to hold you eternally guilty before God. Now, we've all done more than one sin, but James is uh, highlighting our need for a savior. And so God took your certificate of debt. He nailed it to the cross. And on the certificate of debt, the Roman government would write to Telestai. They put the seal of the uh, of Rome on it so that if you were ever stopped again for that crime in the Roman empire, all you would need to do was to, to produce your certificate of debt. And it showed that in God's economy and in, in the Roman economy, you were cleared. You could never be retried for that crime. And likewise, God took our certificate of debt and, and Paul uses as the, in these prison epistles, different illustrations like in Ephesians, which is one of the uh, prison epistles. He uses terminology of a Roman guard, you know, and he spiritualized, he makes spiritual application of the different pieces, say, of the Roman armor to our life. And that's what he's doing here. So you're listening to me, you're in prison, this group of guys, and I'm so glad you're listening. God took your certificate of debt and he's forgiven you. So how far has he forgiven you? Well, in Psalm 103, it says, as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't say the north is from the south. You go north, there's a fixed point. You go south, there's a fixed point. It's measurable. You go east in the globe, you could go east forever. You go west in the globe, you could go west forever. He's saying, I've removed your sin infinitely far away from you. The writer of the Hebrews quotes an Old Testament text where it says, God remembers your sin no more. What does that mean? That God has a case of divine amnesia? No, but it means he doesn't hold it against you. And that's what love does. Love does not keep a record of a wrong done to it. And God doesn't keep a record of your wrong. He's really forgiven you and does not hold that debt against you. And so you have to renew your mind with that truth. But not only does he forgive you in reference to your past, he also makes you a new creature in Christ, where as you learn the principles of spiritual growth, he can allow you to actualize a new position that he's given you. He's declared you to be righteous. That's called justification. He wants you now in your daily life to live righteously. That's called sanctification. And so he's given you a way in which you can live righteously as you grow in Christ. And so growth is very important. So if you guys haven't been through the discovery class, back to basics, that might be a good one. And I'll be happy to provide the material you need um, for the leader of that group. Let's go to the next question. All right. Another uh, listener there says, what should a church in prison do to deal with its members who are not living right? Should we go against the South Carolina Department of Corrections policy about treating all the same? Or should we push to get the South Carolina Department of Corrections to let us follow church discipline God's way so that we are accomplishing his will. Well, what I'm hearing is that there's some people who are in your maybe Bible study group 
who aren't living in conjunction with the truth of scripture. And so you're asking, can I exercise church discipline? Well, you probably don't have a church and I could be wrong. I, I know of a couple places in the Ukraine where we have had a ministry with people in prisons where we've actually started a church in those prisons. I say we, uh, I've, I've been, had a small part in the process, but some of the Ukrainian brothers have. And so you need a pastor. So, you know, what, what constitutes a church? And this is an important question. We cover it in our course on ecclesiology, and that'd be something else that you guys could do. You might want to take a, a course from the Institute of Biblical Studies. But what constitutes a church? A Bible study? Not really. Um, and, and this is important because there are some Christians who say, well, I don't forsake the assembling together of the brethren. You know, I, I go to a Bible study every Tuesday morning and, and that's my church. No, it's not. That's not your church. A church is organized where there's pastors, there's elders, there's deacons. They uh, share in the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. There is church discipline. So one, you probably don't have a church in the fullest sense. Uh, but even if you did, you know, if your brother sins, you reprove him. If he doesn't listen, you take two or three. If he doesn't listen, take it to the whole church. But you probably don't have a church in that sense. You really can't even practice church discipline. But, you know, if there's a, a, a someone who claims to be a believer and they are not, you know, living a righteous life, and they're living wickedly then in one sense, they can be excluded from the fellowship. Maybe not technically, physically, based on some of the rules that are governing you there in the prison, but they can be spiritually, and you can commit them to the Lord. And if they really know Jesus, then they are uh, recipients of the discipline of God. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. We've had people over the years who've been disciplined by our church, um, we, we've exercised church discipline a lot. It's just part of doing what a church is supposed to do. In the last 28 nearly years, I've been the pastor of Community Bible Church. Most of the time, it stops at the first or second level. Occasionally, it goes to the third level where it's brought to the whole church. But I remember on a couple of occasions where a person was actually excommunicated from the church and they ended up coming back. And I said, look, anyone can attend Community Bible Church. You know, we have all kinds of people who attend, but membership is a different issue. Membership in the local fellowship is contingent, not on perfection. We all stumble in many ways, but there are certain sins that carry with it church discipline. And membership is contingent on a person willing to follow and love the Lord. So I don't know if I got the essence of your question. It wasn't super crisp, but if you want to do a follow-up, feel free to ask it again and I'll do my best to respond to it. Well, another hour has slipped away and I'm glad that you're able to join us for the Bible line. If you have friends that have questions, they can go to searchthescriptures.org and click on the icon and Rick will bring those questions up on Tuesdays. And you don't have to be here to hear it. They'll email you back when your question is answered and you can click on the Bible line for that given day and listen to the answer. Thanks for being with us. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ.